have your Bibles, let's turn to Romans 7. And while you're turning there, let me just uh, say this. It's hard to preach when you're crying. But at the same time, I don't know of any other way to do it. Romans chapter number 7. We'll be looking into, digging into, expounding to the best of our ability. Romans chapter number 7, starting in verse number 1, down through verse number 6. Paul writes, he says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Thank you. You can be seated. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we have already been awakened this morning, Lord, to who you are. Lord, as our minds are scattered about so many different events that fall upon us and around us, Lord, we come together this morning, Lord, and we are reminded right off the bat, Lord, of your sovereign, majestic, holiness your power, your greatness, that you are truly wonderful. Lord, today as we look to this passage of Scripture, Lord, it's not an easy one. Lord, it's one in which we are going to have to take time and it needs to settle in, it needs to sink in. Lord, as always, we are dependent upon you to expound the Word of God to us. Lord, it's beyond my physical ability. It's beyond this stammering tongue to do so. So, Lord, we are dependent upon you and your love toward us to show us Jesus Christ and him crucified, to show us and remind us of the wonderful and beautiful relationship between Christ and his church. Lord, that we might recognize, Lord, the power behind that, rec that, that relationship, that energy that works, Lord, within us. 
Lord, that we might live a life of obedience. Lord, not out of law, but out of love. Realizing and recognizing who you are to us. And Lord, who we are to you. Lord, so open up our hearts. Open up our minds this morning. Grant us, by your grace, to understand the beauties and the wonders of your love. Lord, as we just simply scratch the surface this morning, Lord, I pray that you would plant deep within our heart, Lord, not to be satisfied, that we have just simply tasted to know that you are good, but that we have a craving and a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and a thirst to grow in the grace and knowledge of you. Lord, we ask these things, Lord, for your glory. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Before we get into the actual passage, I want to take a look at a bigger picture. I think uh, because of Romans chapter number 7, and in any teacher or preacher, uh, any commentary that you uh, research or address that addresses this issue of chapter number 7, you will find that uh, it is a challenge. It is a challenge to expound. It is a challenge to the human ear to understand. And many times we don't want to just dive right into it. I think it will be best for us in our understanding if we back up, see things from a bigger picture, and then narrow ourselves down to this passage. Now, you may say, is that not what you always do? <laughs> yeah. We always want to take a step back and see where we are in context. Paul has written a letter, a comprehensive, well-thought-out, strategically-placed epistle under the church at Rome. These are not just random thoughts that he has collected like a book of Proverbs. But he has a thought and an intention in mind as to why he wrote this epistle. And every epistle that he writes, and he lays down like a great wise attorney, this argument throughout this epistle always leading to an end state or an end objective. And sometimes if you dive just right into one portion or one verse, or even one chapter, we begin to get ourselves lost because we fail to see the epistle as a whole. So when we look at Romans, and we have seen this and discussed it uh, many times before, he looks at and he begins to expound in those first five chapters justification by faith. We are declared just Righteousness is reckoned to our behalf, not based upon what we do, not based upon our actions, but based upon His righteousness and His grace, it is reckoned to our account by faith. It is solely by His grace, and that is what Paul, in his first five chapters, declaring that none are righteous, we can't do it ourselves, 
He gives the example of Abraham and that righteousness is revealed by God. His righteousness is imputed to us simply by faith, by his grace. And he comes to those concluding statements in chapter number 5. And he expounds because of this, here's where we stand, here's what we have, we're at peace, we have access into this grace, and we hope in the glory of God, knowing that one day we will be glorified. That's the hope that we have. Quite honestly, Paul could have stopped right there, been done, said amen, sung a song, and been done. But he knows that when he makes that declaration, that those who were in Adam were unto death, but yet those who are in Christ are living unto eternal life, and it's all by grace, he knows that opens up questions because we are a people of law. And we want to do right and shun what is wrong. But you're telling us, Paul, that it's all by grace. It's not based upon our action. And that poses the question that we see in Romans 6 that says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He asks the question himself, and he says, by no means, God forbid, no, 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 no. And he goes on to establish the fact or remind them of the fact that we are dead in Christ. We are baptized in union with him so that when he died, we die. And as he was resurrected, we are resurrected. We no longer live unto the old man. We now live unto the new man. And he goes into verse number 14 of chapter 6. And he says, therefore, his first exhortation, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for, unright for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And with that last statement, he didn't just finish an argument. He actually opened up another one. Instead of simply satisfying, saying, hey, we are married. We are joined unto Christ. He died. We died. Therefore, we present ourselves unto him as instruments of righteousness because we're no longer under law but under grace. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you saying we're not under law? We can live however we want. So he asked the question again. Because we are not under law, but under grace, are we to sin? Verse 15. And then he goes into what we have looked at the last couple of times together. A couple of allegories, of examples. To better expound the truth of being under law and under grace. The first he gives is one of slavery. And he points out that we are slaves. Always a slave. You're never not a slave. You are either a slave to unrighteousness or you are a slave to righteousness. There's no neutral ground. You're one or the other. 
And he talks about the process of this. That we were poured into a new form, a new mold, a new doctrine of teaching. And then he goes on to say that the purpose of a master is fruit. He says, you were made a slave of righteousness for a purpose and for a reason. And that is to bear fruit. If you're a slave of unrighteousness, you have fruit, but it's fruit unto death. But if you're a slave unto righteousness, you have fruit unto eternal life. Okay? Now, before we dig into chapter number 7, let's see, and I want you just to really see the punch here. Why we don't continue in sin. God has an end state in mind. Just like when Paul writes his epistle. He doesn't just write randomly thoughts and ideas and neat little stories. He writes with an end state. God has an end state in mind. When God called Abram in Genesis chapter number 12, he did not just take him call him out of a geographical location and put him into a new geographical location just to live however he wants. But he had an end state in mind. There was a reason why God called him out and put him in. I'm going to make of you a great nation. There's promises involved here. Through your seed, all nations shall be blessed. God had an end state in mind. It is with that in mind that we have to recognize as the church that he has called us out and put us in not just for transaction purposes, but God has an end state in mind. Now, I want us to look at this before we get into Romans 7 because I really want us to see this is what Paul is after here. Turn, if you will, to John chapter number 15. And I'm going to read this one, and I'm just going to touch on a few more that you won't have to turn to. We'll be here all day. Romans, or excuse me, John chapter number 15, verse number 8. He says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is what glorifies the Father when you bear fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. John chapter number 15, verse number 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I called you out, Abraham. You weren't looking for me. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, ordained you. Here's my purpose. Here's why I did it that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Okay? Let's look at a couple. And you won't have to turn. I do want you to write these down, but I'm going to touch on these. 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. 2 Corinthians chapter number 6, verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Holiness to completion. Philippians chapter number 1. Again, don't have to turn there, but I do want to read these out. Philippians chapter number 1. Verse number 9. And it was it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Why? So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of of our Lord. Going on in the chapter number four and verse number, let's just read right in verse number one. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. There's an end state. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you for God has not called us for impurity but for holiness Hebrews chapter number 12, he discusses how a father disciplines his child. But yet our heavenly father disciplines us that we might share in his holiness. There is an end state that God has purposed. It was not just a transaction for Abraham to go from one place to another. Nor does it end with Romans chapter number 5 and the transaction of justification. God has an end state in mind. I wish I had have known this years and years ago. I believe we as the church, one of the fallacies that we have is because we are so determined to grow our churches with numbers. And we are so determined to please and tickle the ears and not offend anyone. We stop with the glories and the beauties of justification by faith, but fail to know, to proclaim, to preach that we're still slaves and that God has an end state. We are no longer submitted unto sin, but now we are submitted unto 
righteousness. Now let's go back to Romans chapter number 7. There is an end state that God has in mind. And there is an end state that Paul has in mind. And it is that that he deals with. We had already spoken that he has dealt with. Are we under law or are we under grace? And he gives the example of slavery, that we are either slaves to unrighteousness or slaves to righteousness. In chapter 7, he begins out with or. Or. That signifies that he's not done. He has another example to give to answer the question as to whether we are under law or under grace. And the example he gives here is dealing with marriage. And that is the title of the message today, The Fruit of Marriage. The Fruit of Marriage. Yes, we got the word fruit in there once again because there is, yes, an end state that we're after. We're going to look at the principle of marriage. We're going to look at the purpose in marriage. And we're going to look at the power within marriage. The principle of marriage, the purpose of marriage, and the power of marriage. Now, before we go any further, listen. I didn't just give you that 45-minute introduction. It wasn't 45 minutes. I didn't give you that 45-minute introduction to give you a lesson on how to be a good husband or a good wife. That's not Paul's intention here. But he uses this example of marriage that we might better understand what it means to be under grace and no longer under law. So as he starts out, he says, or do you not know? Again, he calls upon commonness, a commonness, uh, understanding, a common knowledge. He did this back in verse 3. When he says, are we to continue in sin? Do you not know? It should be common knowledge that we are buried with Christ and we are alive unto Christ. And then he says it again in in verse uh, number 15. Verse number 16. Are we under law or under grace? Should we go ahead and sin? Do you not know? Do you not know? And he gives me something with common knowledge. The economy of the day dealing with slavery was one that everybody was well aware of and they could understand. He does the same thing here. Do you not know, brothers? And then he has a little parenthetical. For I am speaking to those who know the law. This is something you should be familiar with. Now, we have to understand that as he writes to the church at Rome, he is dealing with both Gentile believers and Jewish believers. But he puts a blanket statement over both and says, I'm speaking to people that know the law. You understand the economy of slavery? You understand that when we have died, we have died with Christ, we have risen with Christ? You also have a common understanding of the law. Now to the Gentile, you may say, well, how does the Gentile have the law? Look at Romans chapter number 2. Paul's already addressed this. Romans chapter number 2, verse number 14. 
He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, that ceremonial law given unto Moses, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is where? Written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Man, regardless of whether you were Jew or Gentile, man has written upon his heart the law of God. There is an innate sense within us regarding right and wrong. Consider what we have seen over the course of the last two, three months regarding the pandemic. Everybody has an opinion as to what should be done or what should not be done. Why? Because we have written on our hearts an innate understanding that there is a good and there is a bad. Now, based upon how we sear our consciences, what we think is good and what we think is bad is different from society to society and generation to generation. But yet we find that there is within us this understanding of right and wrong. Consider the riots we have seen over the last week. There is an understanding that an injustice has been done. And therefore, everyone has some opinion over what has happened. What was right, what was wrong, and what will serve to be justice. Why do we do that? Because within our heart, believer or unbeliever, regenerate or unregenerate on our heart we have an understanding that there is a right and there is a wrong and there is a justice that goes along with that so paul is writing you know the law he's not just writing to jewish believers but they all do but specifically he knows that the biggest challenge he's going to have is from the jewish believer because the jewish believer has the law. He's got it written in stone. His entire existence is based upon that law of Moses. It's what he has held to. It's what he's caressed. Psalm chapter number 19. Verse number 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. You better believe the Jew loved the law. They saw the importance behind it, but then here comes one who was a Jew, Now coming to them and saying, you're not under the law anymore. So he is explaining to them. He says, I know you understand the law. Whether it is written in your heart or written on the tablets, 
you know the law of God. And that's where he begins his explanation. So we start first with the principle of marriage. That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. You can't punish someone after they're dead. You can't accuse someone after they're dead. The law is only good as long as you're alive. And he gives an example regarding marriage. And again, this is not a dissertation on a good marriage. You might glean some things, but that's not his purpose or his intent. He says, for a married woman is bound by the law or by law to her husband while he lives. She's bound. She has duty and obligation. She has responsibility unto her husband. Likewise, the husband has duty and responsibility unto the woman as long as they are both alive. There is a binding that is there. It was more than just a contract when they were married. But it was an establishment of a relationship between the two. She is bound unto him as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. It is rendered inoperable, innate, idle. It doesn't apply anymore. Okay? So the law is binding as long as he's alive. But if he dies, she's released from that law. She is no longer bound by law unto that husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. If while her husband is alive, she lives with another man. Now let's talk about that word live. It, it, it becomes very key in understanding the text. Because it's not the only place you see it in the Greek within this text. If she lives with, that means that she is married to. That means that she places herself under someone. She obliges herself. She belongs to them. She identifies herself with them. Okay? If she lives, marries, belongs with another man while her husband is alive, she is an adulteress. Okay? We get this, don't we? Okay? But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries, same word as lives. If she marries, that means she is putting herself under, according to the law, that new man. And she is not an adulteress. Now let's understand here. Let's go to Ephesians chapter number 5. Sometimes we lose track of this in our modern concept of marriage. But Ephesians chapter number 5 does give some foresight or some insight into marriage. Verse 21, it says, we are submitting ourselves one to another out of reverence for Christ. And then he gives some examples, and he speaks here specifically to wives. Submit, yourself, submit to your own husbands 
as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and himself is its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. They are to order themselves under the head of the household. God has ordained it in such manner, in such fashion. Think of it as such regarding Christ and God. God the Father, God the Son, co-equal, but yet God submitted himself, placed himself under in obedience unto God. When we talk about Romans 7, this is what he has in mind. That the woman places herself under the husband. Okay, there is a rule, there is an order there. Her desires are to her husband. She lives to please him. When the husband dies, she is free to please another. Okay? Now, again, this is not a dissertation on marriage. So let's see where Paul goes with this. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ. You have died to the law. What does that mean? He doesn't say it, but he's implying that you were once married to the law. You were bound to it. You had duty. You had obligation. You had placed yourself under the law. And the obligation that was due unto you because you were under the law was death. The only way you could fulfill the requirements of the law because of your sin was that you die. But we have died to the law through the body of Christ. Christ died. And we died with him. And the law is fulfilled. You have died. That's in the aorist tense. Talking about the completion of it. It's done. It's also in the passive tense. That means you didn't do it. You didn't crucify yourself. It was a divine act of God. That when Christ died, he imputed your sins unto him and you died with him. You have died to the law through by means of the body of Christ so now let's think of our analogy here we were married to the law now one of us has died therefore there is a release from the law but there's a purpose behind that you remember you're a slave one way or the other in this analogy, you married one way or the other. You were either married to the law. When you died, that law has been fulfilled. That you may belong to another. That you may belong to another. That word belong, same word as marry, same word as lives in verse 3. You are now not under the law. You're under Christ. He is your husband. And as the husband lays down his life for his wife, 
living unto her, you are living unto him. To please him. To love him. You belong to him. Now, I think it's interesting here. Let's point this out. It does play in with what he spoke of in verses 1 through 3. He doesn't just say, so that you may belong to Christ. And then ended at that. He adds a phrase there. He says, to him who has been raised from the dead. Everybody stop and think about that. When you died in Christ, that relationship with the law ended. That marriage was severed. Okay? The only thing that's going to end the marriage is death, right? Somebody answer the question. Is Christ going to die again? I'll go ahead and answer that if you're, as you're spinning your brain. No. Christ is alive forevermore. He's not going to die again and cause the severance or the end of this marriage. We also have eternal life. So we're not going to die. So is this marriage ever going to end? No. This marriage will never be severed. He says, we are now belonging, we're married, we now live with another, Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead. Now, that's, that's, that's a good analogy there. When you talk about marriage and death and the end of that relationship, wonderful. We can see that, right? We now live unto someone else. We live unto Christ. But there's a purpose behind the marriage. Again, the marriage is not just a paper transaction. There's a purpose behind the marriage. And he says this in the next phrase. In order that we may what? Bear fruit for God. There's a reason why people are married. Okay? To bear fruit. Now let's just talk about this in a little context and understanding when my wife and I were married she took my name that means that she identifies herself with me if you are ever to spend any time with my wife it will not be long before you realize she's not just wearing a ring she doesn't just have a marriage certificate but that based upon her actions, based upon her speech, based upon her life, you're going to realize she is a married woman and his name must be Chris. Same is true with me. If you spend any time with me, you are going to quickly realize not because I have a ring on my finger, not because I have a picture on my desk, but you're going to realize based upon the whole tenor of my life that I am a married man and you're going to know that her name is Rhonda. Okay? When you think about the marriage relationship, that's what it looks like. It's not just a piece of paper. 
There is a purpose behind it that you are bearing fruit unto God. That identity, that lifestyle you live, that is the fruit of your marriage. Likewise, it's, it's how they know your marriage. Likewise, we bear fruit unto God. Our marriage relationship unto God is known by our fruit, by our walk, by our holiness. That's the purpose. You could even think of it in terms of children. God gave Adam Eve and said, be fruitful and multiply. That's a command he gave him, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Have children to replenish the earth. The purpose behind marriage was to bear fruit, to identify with one another, to be recognized with one another, to care for one another, to provide for one another. Bear fruit, children. There's a purpose behind it. The law or the purpose behind marriage. God didn't just give you a transaction, a marriage certificate, and say, go live however you want to live. Go ahead and sleep around all you want to, live with whoever you want. That's not what God married us for. That's not why He pursued us. He pursued us to be His bride, to be holy and righteous and blameless. That people see us, they see him, and they look at us and they know, hey, that's a married man. Married to Christ. That's the purpose. Even the law. Watch this. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit unto death. Think about that. Even the law, which we were once under and married to, even its desire was fruit. It wasn't just married just to be married and have a transaction or have something in, in the safe deposit box saying we're married. Even the law had a purpose behind the union. Even the law wanted to bear fruit with you. And the law wanted it to be holy. But yet we find here that the fruit that was born through the law was fruit unto death. Now hang on. That throws a wrench in things. We have a principle of marriage that once you are die, once you die, you're free to marry someone else. We're no longer married to the law. We're now married unto Christ. There's a purpose behind that marriage that we bear fruit unto God. Even the marriage we had with the law had a purpose, and that was to bear fruit. Why? Who, got, who gave the law? We didn't dream it up on our own. God gave us the law. He wrote it with his own finger. God spoke the law unto us. The law is holy. The law is righteous. But how can it be if the law is holy and the law is righteous, how can the fruit of that law be unholy and unrighteous and unto death? That brings me to point number three, the power 
within a marriage. Now, I know we have some basketball fans among us. I know our pastor is a Laker fan. I, too, was once a Laker fan. Back in the days of Magic Johnson and James Worthy and Karun Abdul-Jabbar and A.C. Green and those likes. My days of my affection toward basketball stopped after junior high when you actually had to have basketball talent to participate. But I followed it from afar, if anything. But let me give you an understanding. How can a holy law get unholy results? Now, Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson was the coach of the Chicago Bulls and the Los Angeles Lakers. Arguably, Phil Jackson is the greatest coach in NBA history. He is. He's won 11 NBA championships in the 20 years that he coached. Never had a losing season. Is the only Hall of Fame coach that has 70, a winning percentage of 70 or greater. That means he's going to win 7 out of 10 games. You put him on the floor. He has more championships than any other professional coach at all. Football, baseball. So he's arguably the greatest coach of any professional sport. Hmm? Can't, can't deny that. But here's the thing. Phil Jackson never coached the Memphis Grizzlies. Phil Jackson never coached the Atlanta Hawks, the Milwaukee Bucks, Orlando Magic. You see, he had the greatest X's and O's that you could think of. Remember sitting over on the side here to do this? That was his entire coaching strategy. He'd do that. But he always had players that could execute this. Jordan, Pippen, Kerr, Shaq, Kobe. He always had people that fit, that had the ability to execute his X's and O's. We as coaches always say it's not about the X's and O's, it's about the Jimmy's and Joe's. It's not about how you can draw it up on the chalkboard and do you have people that can actually execute it on the court or on the field. Okay? So back to here. How can a holy law, perfect, Phil Jackson, how can it not produce holy fruit? An NBA title. The law has to have some Jimmys and Joes that are able to execute it. There's a reason why Phil Jackson didn't take the job with the Knicks. That was always kind of the rumor because he was a Nick himself back in the 70s. Why? They didn't have Michael Jordan. They didn't have Kobe Bryant. They didn't have Shaq. He knows. My, my law's not going to work there. My rules aren't going to apply. The reason a holy law doesn't get holy fruit is because of the players in between. 
For while we were living in the flesh, unregenerate, living in the flesh, living according to our sinful desires, married to the law, destined to die, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit unto death. The law, it's not aroused by the law, by means of the law. The law wanted us to bear holy fruit. But our sinful passions prevented us from doing just that. As a matter of fact, our sinful passions went the other direction. We are sons of disobedience. The unregenerate, we have this natural innate desire to rebel when a law is given. It didn't take long for the woman and then Adam to eat of the tree. It was already done. Yeah. The law says no. We say, let me try. Don't do this. I've done planted it in my mind. I want to see how close I can get to don't do this by doing this. Our sinful passions by nature rebel against the holy law. So that puts us in a little bit of a quandary. The holy law wants to produce fruit to holiness, but it produces fruit unto death. But now, things are different. Now that we are no longer married to the law, married now unto Christ, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We no longer live according to a written code. We were not saved, pulled out of Ur, set down in the promised land, and just given a new set of code and a new set of of rules and regulations to follow. That is not the Christian walk. That is not the Christian marriage. God himself, our husband, pursued us, chased us down. You men know what I'm talking about. Pursued us. compelled us, drew us unto himself, planted his spirit within us, took out the heart of stone, put within us a heart of flesh, gave our, his law and put it in our hearts that he abides with us not rules and regulations, not to do this, don't do that, but he lives and dwells within us. And we now live according to 
the new way of the Spirit. We serve. That word serve is that same word we see a lot with Paul's slave. A lot of times transfer it servant, but we kind of lose the effect of that. A slave has no choice. He serves. He serves as man. That's the entire purpose of his entire existence, to do what the boss says to do. But we serve out of the newness of the Spirit. Think about the law. When we lived according to the law, did I do it or did I not? If I did it, will I get a reward? If I didn't do it, what's my punishment? That's not how we live with God. We live and serve out of love, not obligation. We, love, we, we serve out of love, not duty. Having died to that which held us captive, so we serve. That word serve, thank you, brother. That word serve, it is not in the subjective mood. It doesn't imply now that we're now we're able to serve. We've got a choice. Or that it's possible that we serve. We might do it. But it is in an infinitive mood that says you were saved to serve. That is the power within our marriage. We're not living according to a written code. Even using the Bible as a written code. Well, I try to live according to Matthew chapter number 5 through 7. I have the bracelet that says, what would Jesus do? And I'm trying to live according to some type of code or written rules or written regulation. Something external. But what we find is that we are new creatures. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17. We're not adding on to a former code, Nicodemus. You have to be born again. And when you're born again, the Spirit lives and dwells within you. And you serve, not out of fear, not out of hope of reward, but you serve out of love. We're no longer under law. We're under grace. We are no longer married to law. We're married to Christ. And as such, we serve him with the purpose of bearing fruit. And we do it by means of the Spirit of God. June 17th. about two weeks me and my wife will be celebrating 25 years of marriage I love my wife you spend any time with me it won't take long before you realize who my wife is 
We are always together. We even work together now. And if we're ever separated or apart, it's usually for a very short time. We share the same mind, the same ideas, same values. So when you spend time with me, you're going to know my wife. You spend time with my wife, you're going to know me because I'm married to her. It's more than just a certificate. It's more than just a ring on my finger. It's more than just a symbol. She's my wife. And I live my life thinking about her. She don't believe that. When I close the door to my office, I'm either thinking about God or I'm thinking about my wife. She's beautiful. She's wonderful. I live my life to please her. If she wants something, I'm going to try to find a way to get it. I want her to be happy. I want her to be pleased. And she lives the same way toward me. She wants me to be happy. She wants me to have all of my desires. And she lives a life according to that. That's what it means to be married. You spend any time with me, you're going to know who my husband is. You're going to know the man in my life. Because I live my life with a desire to please him. I live my life wanting to know what he thinks. I live my life trying to bring joy to him in the same way that he lived his life and gave his life to bring joy to me. That's what it means to be married. That's what it means to be under grace. We have been saved with a purpose. That is to bear fruit. We have been married to the Lord Jesus Christ with a purpose. And that is to bear fruit. Fruit unto holiness. I just wonder. People see your life. Spend a little time with you? Are they going to know who you're married to? Oh, yes, they will. They're going to know who your husband is. They're going to know who your bridegroom is. It shows forth in your walk, in your talk, and in your works. They're going to know. If you don't know my husband, you don't know Jesus Christ, let me tell you something. He's wonderful. He's marvelous. He's glorious. He's beautiful. And he loves me like nobody else loves me. You should know that by the way I walk.